The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn in your Old Testaments to the Minor Prophet book of Amos. We're going to be looking at uh, several things in Amos this evening and making application. So while we'll be going other places, we're going to be reading from Amos quite a bit this evening, so you might at least put a marker there in that book. It's wonderful to be with you this evening, um, especially concerning the circumstances. Um, I think that we're especially happy this evening to be able to meet and, and assemble in God's name and worship Him, and, and as we'll do after um, the sermon, uh, observe the Lord's Supper. And I might just remind you um, to grab your emblems if you haven't. We're not all always used to doing that on Sunday evening, uh, but we'll be doing that this evening, of course. So you might do that if you haven't yet. So it's wonderful to be with you. I hope that this lesson will be beneficial to you. I've been encouraged and edified by our worship here this evening. I'm sure you have been as well. I hope that continues in this lesson. God, as we know, was very clear to the people of Israel that he called to be his special people, his holy nation, that they would receive an immense blessing throughout their relationship with God or he would bring upon them devastating curses. And these were, of course, contingent upon their response to God's loving kindness and His Word He gave to them. If they were obedient, then He would bless them. If they were disobedient, then He would curse them. And their unfaithfulness would result in immense adversity. That would be the curse. God would bring up nations against them, and they would be de defeated by their surrounding enemies. And, and conversely, the blessing would actually be in part the victory over various enemies. And the sins of the people and her leaders, namely idolatry and all the many immoralities that came with it, eventually led the children of Israel as a whole nation to actually be split in two. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. And even though that resulted from sin, God still promised both nations blessings continued upon their faithfulness. And He likewise promised them cursing upon their disobedience. The children of Israel who were divided to the northern kingdom of Israel with Jeroboam being the first king quickly and immediately went into idolatry where he set up high places at Dan and Bethel as a matter of convenience with the calves like Aaron molded in Exodus 32, and they quickly went into idolatry away from the will of God, and sin compounded upon itself, and they set themselves up for future Assyrian captivity. Eventually Judah would follow, even more so, and would be captive by Babylon. But Amos is a minor prophet book concerning the prophecy of a sheep herder who was sent by God to the northern nation of Israel, and he is actually a man who lived in Judah at the time. And so this man is going to the sinful nation of Israel and really just preaching judgment to them, telling them that it's been long enough, God's given them so many shots at returning to Him and turning away from their sin, and the time has come where you're going to be judged. God is going to give you over to a nation. In Amos 6 and verse 14, Amos says, Behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, 
and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. And that nation was the Assyrian nation. At the very beginning of Amos, there were six other Gentile heathen nations that were spoken of in judgment. And I think that the wisdom of God is seen in that as they set up the children of Israel looking at those enemy nations and hearing that prophecy of their destruction and judgment. And then God speaks of Judah's judgment and then God speaks of Israel's judgment. You're going to be judged just like those people because you are my special people and you were called to holiness and yet you failed in that regard. They would be led into Assyrian captivity. And that's exactly what history records for us. But you know, along with that, we see a judgment in Amos, the eighth chapter, that is devastating as well as it comes along with this judgment of captivity. And verse 11, Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Verse 14, referencing their idolatrous practices, and their idols would not help them. And so in a time of Israel's history where they rejected God's word, God determined not just to destroy them as a nation and lead them into Assyrian captivity, but to take entirely His revelation away from them. They wouldn't hear from God anymore. And it's ironic that while they had an abundance of God's Word and His revelation at their fingertips, they didn't want it at all. When it was taken from them, their thirst was greater than ever. He begins chapter 8 with a vision of a basket of summer fruit, which is ultimately an image for us to see that Israel was ripe for judgment, ripe for destruction. You've done this long enough, and enough is enough, and so you'll be judged. And one of those judgments was a famine of the Word of God. I want to ask you a question. Is it possible for there to be a famine of the Word of God today? Is that possible? I know in Jude 3, Jude writes by inspiration and says, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. It's not that God's going to destroy all our Bibles. It's not that God is going to delete the text of Scripture. But I would suggest to you that there could be and can be, and many times there is a famine of the Word of God today among God's people. I'm not talking about the denominational world. I'm talking about the Lord's church. Is it possible that there can be a famine of the Word of God? I think it can happen, and I think it has happened in many places, and it could even happen here. It will happen if we do the same things that the Israelites did as Amos recorded. The scripture of Amos' prophecy is filled with reasons why they would be led into captivity and reasons why they were ripe for destruction and reasons why God would take His word away from them. We need to make sure that we beware of following their example. Let me suggest to you first that materialism will lead to this famine of the word of God. In Amos, the third chapter in verse 15, and one of these images of judgment God explains, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Don't you think it would be nice to have the financial capacity to not just own the home you live in regularly, but have a summer house? 
house you can get away to. Many celebrities and those who are affluent in our country have more than one house, some two, some three, some a handful of houses. And they live from place to place, and those houses are set up in various locations of, of affinity for those people. And what it is is a representation of luxury. That was the case with the children of Israel. They were at the apex of their wealth as a country and of their success politically and financially, and they were living it up. And that caused them to undermine the spiritual and look away from the spiritual. God would destroy them. One of the reasons He would destroy them is because of their luxurious practices. In chapter 6 and verses 1 and 8, 1 through 8, He demonstrates that those luxuries actually caused them to have a sense of trust and and a feeling of stability that was false. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. They were complacent. They thought everything was great. Who trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calna and see, and there to Hamath and the great, and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? What do you who put off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall go down, shall now go captive as the first of the captives and shall and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I want us to notice that God is not saying that luxuries and wealth is sinful in itself. God blessed them with these things. What it turned into was the sinful practice. They were at ease. They were complacent. Verse 3 suggests that they did not take the warnings of God seriously and therefore were bringing violence upon themselves. They were living it up and didn't realize that they were destitute and naked spiritually. In the same way, materialism, especially that we are blessed in this country, we need to be careful of this, can bar out the Word of God. It can allow us to lose perspective and allow us to see the power of God's Word, and realize what is most important. There's an example of this in Matthew 13 when Jesus explains the parable of the sower. He says in verse 21, He who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the Word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word, and he becomes unfruitful. The thorny soil represents the heart of the individual who has received the Word, and it has given sprout to some degree who after he has received the Word and understood it to be the truth and applied it to some degree, allows material things to choke out that Word. And I think we've all experienced that from time to time as we've seen in the lives of others. Someone obeys the Gospel and it seems like they're on fire for the Lord, but then the cares and the wealth of this life or the material things allow them to lose perspective. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses some of those cares that He speaks about in Matthew 13. 
When he says in verses 19 through 21, don't lay up treasures on earth where they can be destroyed, but you need to lay up treasure in heaven where nothing can be destroyed. He explains in verses 22 through 23, if your vision is split, you're going to allow all the darkness inside of you. You've got to be focused. And he explains that in verse 24 by saying you cannot serve both God and mammon. You will hate the one and love the other. And that's when he goes into his discourse on saying, do not worry, but what should you do? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. He's saying if you allow these cares, they're important things, and we should indeed care about them, but if you allow those cares to turn into worry, they will consume you. You'll forget about God's will, and you'll fall away. You won't be a servant of God anymore. He speaks about the riches, and we might be... We might remember in Luke 12 the parable of the rich fool and what brought that parable on, that this man built up his barns and he he said that he was set and ready to go and his soul was required of him that evening. In verse 13 of Luke 12, one said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. You know what Jesus was saying is that I'm not here to deal in physical, material matters. And you need to prioritize. You need to focus on what is eternal because your life is not about these riches. I think we see that on display in a text we recently studied in the Gospel of John. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish and there was an incredible amount of leftovers They sought him for more bread and fish. And Jesus said in verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. What we see from this is that a focus on material things will impair our ability to accurately estimate what we truly should have value in in this life. It will impair our ability to discern between what is important and what is unimportant. And to that degree, will even affect the way we view Scripture. They saw this man and wanted to make him king. They thought he was the Messiah, but all they thought about was the physical things that he could offer. They missed the whole point. And it was from the mind of materialism. I think we see that with the Corinthian church as well where the Apostle Paul gets on to them for being carnally minded, which is another way of saying fleshly minded. They're thinking about physical things and in physical ways. And he says, I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and now you are not even still able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so materialism and the eye that only focuses on the physical, even if they are continually consuming God's Word on some level and in some way, they will have the inability to see the truth for what it actually is because they're carnally minded. And what they will tend to do is to take what is spiritual and warp it into something that is carnal and not beneficial at all spiritually. That's exactly what the Corinthians did. Paul and Apollos, as he would go on to demonstrate, taught the same truth, taught the same gospel. 
And as He pled with them in chapter 1, you need to speak the same things, be of the same mind and the same judgment. What was the problem? They viewed Paul and Apollos as philosophers and pitted them against themselves in competition and divided among themselves. They took what was spiritual and beneficial and because they were material in mind or carnal in mind, the Word of God was not among them. They were not able to see the truth. Materialism can do the same thing to us if we're not careful. Along those lines of not having the proper focus, Amos is very clear that one of the things that brought about the famine of the Word of God was their fondness of sin. In Amos, the second chapter, when he first begins to speak about the reasons they're being judged, he says in verse 6, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down at every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. They loved injustice. They took advantage of the less fortunate. And notice in verse 7 when he says they pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. It's suggesting they thirst for oppressing those who are less fortunate than them. They live for taking advantage of the poor and needy. They had too much of a fondness of sin. And you know what's interesting as we study the nation of Israel and their history that they never really fully departed from religion. Their religion was perverted. There were times and pockets where it was true, but then it would go back into the perverted forms of idolatry. But they never even fully abandoned some of the things which God required of them. But I want us to notice what he says about that in chapter 8 of Amos in verse 5. These people who are being judged, he says, are saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. In other words, they couldn't wait for the religious observances to pass that would preclude them, especially we're familiar with the Sabbath, from working and trading. They couldn't wait for those things to pass so that not only they could continue their work and labor, but they could continue their sinful abuse of their trades. Even selling the bad wheat, they say, falsifying the scales. They had a fondness of sin. And because they had a fondness of sin, they made themselves at enmity with God. In James 4 and verse 4, James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with, of, of God. That's what they did. Enemies don't communicate in the same way. God cut His Word off from them, ultimately because they loved what was contrary to it. I think this is why in James 1 and verse 21, He tells us, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. That Word has the power to save our souls. It is the power of God to salvation, Romans 1 and verse 16. But even though it has the power to save us, if the person who is being taught the Word would rather has a greater desire for what is contrary to His Word and he's not willing to break free, it doesn't matter how much of the Word is spoken to that person. 
they'll not receive the benefit of it. We've got to be able to cast aside what is sinful, repent in order for God's Word to be effective in our lives. A fondness of sin will bar out the Word of God. And I think we see why to a certain degree in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We might remember in verse 5 that Timothy is told by Paul that the whole purpose of God's commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And he was giving uh, Timothy the responsibility to wage the warfare. That is, fight against false doctrine, uphold the truth, be what you are called to be as an evangelist. And I want us to notice how he described that charge in verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy 1. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Notice this, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. He names them Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn to not blaspheme. So he tells Timothy, If you are to be successful in holding the truth up against this error and defeating the ploys of Satan, You've got to do two things. You've got to have faith. We've got to trust in God's Word if we're to defend it. And a good conscience, which goes right along with it. He's saying you've got to possess yourselves as a vessel of honor. You've got to maintain your sanctification and stay away from the sin of this world lest you defile your conscience and allow that to compromise your dealing with the truth. That's what Hymenaeus and Alexander did. He said they rejected faith in a good conscience. They no longer trusted in God and they involved themselves in sin. And when someone involves themselves in sin and they're still trying to have some kind of work in the Word of God and in spiritual things, in order to make them sleep well at night, in order to get by without being so uncomfortable it hurts, they're going to start changing the Word of God. They're going to leave things out. They're going to add things. They're going to twist it. And so if we don't have a good conscience, we're going to be tempted to change how God's Word reads, to change how we hear God's Word. In other words, we'll be subject to spiritual famine if we're not careful. Sin is progressive. And the individual who is caught in sin is indeed caught in a trap. The devil is far greater in power and wisdom than we are. He's cunning. He's crafty. And that's why we need to trust in God. If we're to be of the truth and maintain a knowledge of the truth to our spiritual benefit, we've got to keep our conscience clean and pure. In Hebrews chapter 9, it speaks about how Jesus' blood purifies the evil conscience. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says that we can have a purified conscience through the washing of water, and ultimately through baptism, as that's a figure of it. He's saying you've got to maintain your purity, or there is a possibility and a temptation to not hear the truth how it's intended to be heard, or as Timothy is in the position of preaching, to compromise the preaching of the truth. I think we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verses 9 through 12, that those who ultimately were unable to know the truth and receive the truth and therefore follow the truth, are those who didn't love the truth, verse 10. And Paul explains by inspiration in verse 11, for this reason God will send them strong delusion. That's a famine of the Word of God. It's not that the Word of God isn't there and coming. The people of Israel in the time of Amos, they still had the law of the Lord. They still had 
the understanding that they had taught them from their forefathers. But they would receive no more revelation of God. They'd be given over to them their sins. God would send these people strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but what had pleasure in unrighteousness. They were fond of sin. And so the word of God was not in their heart. A third thing that Amos records throughout those few chapters of his prophecy that led to the captivity of Assyria, but also to the famine of God's word is their perverted worship that they were involved in. As I alluded to earlier, it's not that really Israel ever had a complete end to religious observance, but their religious observances were unauthorized and perverted. And we see an example of that in Amos. Chapter 4 and verse 4, God says through Amos, come to Bethel and transgress. That's the place of idolatry. And Gilgal as well, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, uh, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. He's not encouraging them to sin. It's an ironic expression. Keep on doing what's bringing destruction your way. You may not think that destruction is coming, but multiply your transgression. Keep on doing it. I think that uh, I've heard my dad say something similar to me before as, as a child where he might give me a stern look and I know what that look means. I'm doing something that I ought not to do and I may keep doing it and he might say, keep on doing it, see what happens. That's what God's saying. But it's interesting because in the next chapter, he says the opposite. He says that this virgin of Israel has fallen and will rise no more and there won't be anyone to raise her up. And he says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity and Bethel shall come to nothing. He's saying, keep doing what you're doing if you want destruction, but seek me if you want to live. Their worship was not right in the sight of God. And that brought upon the spiritual famine of the Word of God. Notice in the latter part of chapter 5, he speaks about some things which he uses words and phrases which are reminiscent of what was commanded the children of Israel in the law. Yet he rebukes them for these things. He says, I, I, I'm not delighted by these things like other scriptures in the Old Testament. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You can keep worshiping me all you want, but if you're not repenting of these things, it's not going to save you. But I would direct your attention to the next three verses because while they may have been doing some things that were right overall, their worship was perverted. And he reminds them of this, that they haven't even broken free from the habits of their forefathers. He said, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chin, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Stephen quotes that scripture in Acts the 7th chapter. And it was in the context of the idolatry of the children of Israel. That's what he's saying here. You've never broken free from idolatry from the wilderness wandering. When you wandered in the wilderness at the very inception of you as a nation, 
you were involved in idolatry. And because of your persistence and perverted worship, God will take the word away from them. Perverted worship will bar out the word of God. Jesus said in John 4.24 that what God seeks is spiritual worship, and that's worship from spiritual worshipers in spirit and in truth. It has to be sincere, but it also has to be according to God's word. Perverted worship will lead to a famine of the word of God because perverted worship supplants God's word with unauthorized tradition. In Matthew, the 15th chapter in verse 3, after the Pharisees tested Jesus and asked why His disciples don't submit to the tradition of the elders, He said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Their traditions supplanted God's Word. And He explained as He quoted from Isaiah in verse 7, well, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to Me with their mouth and honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me, and in vain they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, there are those who claim to be churches of Christ, those who belong to Christ, who have added some things to their worship or even taken some things out of their worship. And they think that it's okay to worship God in any way that we might desire. And they think that it's without consequence. But in reality, what comes along with perverted worship is perverted living in all facets of life. You cannot have unauthorized worship without unauthorized living in the lives of individual Christians. When you bring some sin in as a perversion of God's Word, it is opening as a fountainhead the floodgates of all sin. That's what happens when we undermine God's Word. It allows anything to go. And I think we see that in an example of the children of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul looked to them as examples. Examples not to follow, but examples nonetheless. He said, these things became our examples in the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice this though, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. The quotation in verse 7 is from Exodus 32 when Moses was on Sinai, and remember they convinced Aaron to make a molten image out of gold, a cap for them to worship, because we don't know what is of Moses. He's left us. And what Aaron did after he made that calf is said, this is Jehovah, the God who led you out of Egypt. And so in their mind, they were worshiping Jehovah, but Jehovah is not made with hands. They were idolaters at that time. And what accompanied that perverted worship? They thought they were worshiping Jehovah, but the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play is really a euphemism for what he goes on to state explicitly in verse 8 among other things. They committed sexual immorality. A cornerstone of idolatry was the ability to give yourselves over to the basis forms of human lust and sexual immorality in service to that God. And while they claimed to be serving Jehovah, since their worship was perverted, they became offenders of the most basic teachings of God's Word. They committed the most basic restrictions that God had given them. When worship is perverted to any degree and on any level, it opens the door for a rejection of God's Word on a greater level. Fourthly, what will lead to a famine of the Word of God is forsaking justice and righteousness. And that's a big thing that the children of Israel were guilty of. You see it throughout the entirety of the Old Testament 
God speaks all the time about looking out for those who are needy and for upholding those who are are proven righteous and innocent of punishing sin and not sweeping it under the rug. Dealing with what is unrighteous and praising what is righteous. Maintaining justice because God is a just God. And to undermine those basic fundamental principles of who God is led to a famine of His Word. In Amos, the fifth chapter in verse 7, like he says in chapter 6 and verse 12, Amos says, you turn justice to wormwood. That is something that is bitter. And lay righteousness to rest in the earth. They put it in a place that it can be trampled on and consider it as something small. In chapter 6 and verse 12, as I mentioned, he says, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? In other words, can you do these things which would damage this animal and get away with it, or will there be consequences? And so he applies that in the next part of the verse, yet you have turned justice into gall, something bitter, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And so they treated justice with contempt, and they didn't care about living righteously. They didn't praise righteousness. They didn't uphold righteousness. They didn't put righteousness forth as something that was good. Isaiah prophesied and said that there were those who would call... uh, that which is sweet, bitter, and they would put light for darkness. They would call something that is righteous, unrighteous, and something that was unrighteous, righteous. And that's that's exactly what we're talking about here. When when the tables have turned and, and those things have been flipped, the next step is not understanding or receiving anything from God's Word. In chapter 5 and verse 10 of Amos, he explains, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate. And they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. So not only do they undermine and devalue righteous living, but when there are those who are standing up for righteousness and maintaining or at least attempting to maintain justice in the place of judgment where the courts were held, they rebuke sin and they uphold righteousness and they speak uprightly. The majority of the Israelites spoke down on that. When there is a situation, a person or a people who will look negatively at the individual speaking truth and wanting to stand for the truth and apply the truth, and instead will cater to the sinfulness, there's an incredible and fundamental problem in that place. To forsake justice and forsake righteousness, then, is to forsake God's communication with us. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 The Apostle Paul explained that Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable, therefore, for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And I think that's why he goes on in chapter 4 to say that there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine because sound doctrine is what verse 16 of chapter 3 is. But because of itching ears, they will heap up themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. And what he's telling Timothy is you preach the word in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's unpopular, when they want to hear it, when they don't want to hear it, you preach it always. Because there's going to come a time when people won't want to hear it and they'll need to hear it. Why would someone turn away from sound doctrine and heap up for themselves storytellers and false teachers? Because they don't like righteousness. And they have forsook it in their heart and in their actions. And they certainly don't like the justice of rebuke and discipline. They don't want their toes to be stepped on. They don't want to hear the truth which would make them uncomfortable because they're not following the truth. So what's their way out of it? I want to find a teacher that will tell me something that is good for me to hear, that, that sounds good, it's pleasant to the ears. 
And to heap up for a teacher like that is to put yourself in a spiritual famine of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul addresses fables in his first epistle to Timothy. In verses 3 and 4, he explained, I left you in Ephesus that you may teach some or charge some to teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And he explains that that's not what the Word of God is for. What the Word of God is for, verses 8 through 11, it's not for a righteous man, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And he names some sins, anything contrary to sound doctrine and the glorious gospel committed to Paul's trust. What he's saying is the whole purpose of inspired Scripture is to rebuke. is to say, this is right, this is wrong, and if the shoe fits, wear it. And it may hurt your feelings, it may step on your toes, but God doesn't care about that. He cares about us getting out of that sin and into the right way. And if we're fed up with righteousness and we're fed up with the justice of God, which speaks about the punishment of unrighteousness and the discipline that is necessary to correct people out of unrighteousness, then we're a step away from a spiritual family. That's what God's Word is for. And that's how it came upon the children of Israel. There's an example of this, a case study in 1 Corinthians the 5th chapter about those who have forsook justice and we're in danger of forsaking the entirety of truth. Paul explains it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now that unheard of sin, even among the Gentiles, is in the church of God. And what have they done about it? He explains, you are puffed up. You are arrogant. You're filled with pride. You have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. What does being puffed up have anything to do with their neglect of disciplining this individual who is in unrepentant sin? They didn't think that they were affected by it. They thought that this person could be in their midst, even in sin that is not even to be named among the Gentiles. Sin is sin, and it's bad enough as it is. But this was an abhorrent thing, and they thought that they were good enough, they had enough spiritual gifts. The Apostle Paul laid the foundation in Corinth, and so this couldn't touch them. They were okay. In chapter 4, he had explained that some of them act like they were already kings and already wearing their crowns. They were arrogant. And part of their arrogance was displayed in their inability and their lack of willingness to uphold justice within the local body. When sin is committed, it must be dealt with. And it is the focus and the desire for at its very start, the rebuke will bring a lost soul back. But here, evidently, it didn't. Yet they swept it under the rug. And I want us to notice what he goes on to say they were in danger of being subject to. He addresses their pride again in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Notice, therefore let us keep the feast, that is the work of God, doing what God wills, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The implication is, that if they continued to allow unrighteousness to fester, they left it unchecked, they swept it under the rug, they weren't willing to stand up for the justice of God where sin must be dealt with 
and discipline must be enforced, they just ignored the sin, it would lead to not maybe just a neglect, but a total rejection of the truth. They had spots in their love feasts. They had leaven in their lump. And therefore, they were in danger of being wholly leavened. And 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, the apostle said, we exhort your brethren to warn those who are unruly, among other things. And as he gives these exhortations, he goes on in verse 19 to say, do not quench the Spirit. That's speaking of the revelation of the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That is inspired revelation. Test all things and hold fast what is good. The way you would know what is good and abstain from every form of evil is by comparing it to the Word of God. He's saying don't quench that. Don't put it to the side. Don't neglect it. Don't cause yourselves to be subject to a spiritual famine. But I want us to know that as he mentioned, they need to warn the unruly. That is a direct command of God's revelation. If they neglect that, if they neglect the comfort of the faint-hearted, any of those things, but in our topic, neglect justice, they don't warn those who are in sin. They don't point out their sin. They don't do anything about it. No discipline is enforced whatsoever. They're quenching the Spirit, just like Paul told them not to do. You're hearing God's Word that's saying, this is sin, so this person that's involved in it, they need to be warned. And if they don't repent of their sin, they need to be disciplined. And you don't do that, you have put out the Word of God. You've refused the Word of God, and because of that, you're subject to a spiritual famine. It may not happen overnight, but little by little, little fade. This goes, then that goes, then this is tolerated, and that is tolerated. And before you know it, you don't have a church that is built on the Bible, but on man's wisdom and his desires. Lastly, the famine of the Word of God will come simply from a distaste of truth. Notice in the second chapter of Amos in verse 11, God says, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. And the Nazarites were individuals who had taken a vow to holiness. And they were obviously beneficial to the people of Israel because holy people are beneficial to any people. They were a type of spiritual benefit God had given Israel. And we understand prophecy. I gave you prophets to speak the Word of God and you told them don't prophesy. And it's because they obviously did not want to hear God's Word. In chapter 7, he speaks one of several visions that represent their destruction that was coming. And in verse 7 he says, He showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in His hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. A plumb line was a string with the weight on the end of it. And what it did as it worked with gravity is it showed true verticality. And it says, God is standing on a wall made with a plumb line. It's truly vertical. It was made according to a standard. They had something to compare it to, and the wall was right. And he says, I set that plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. He's speaking of the standard of his word. I've given you a code to live by. I've told you exactly how I want everything in your lives as a nation. And now I'm going to show how crooked you are next to my standard. And what this vision did was it confirmed that they were ripe for judgment, as he says in chapter 8. And it's interesting that they had a distaste for truth as it's 
shown very vividly in verses 12 and 13 when Amaziah the priest said to Amos as he heard these judgments, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. Just like we read in chapter 2, I gave you prophets, but you said do not prophesy. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth because it showed that they were not of the truth and they needed to make a change to be of the truth. All it takes is for a little bit of a bitterness that comes from hearing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to snowball into a complete rejection of the truth. If we ever find ourselves feeling that way, where we hear a, a scripture or we hear a sermon, we, we're taught something that might not quite line up with how we are and it convicts us of sin, and we don't like that to the extent of we're putting off making the changes, we're one step closer to being in a spiritual famine of God's Word. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites. And it's what happened to the nation of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 36, it really gives a, a summation of God's dealing with the southern nation of Judah, which lasted a little bit longer than the nation of Israel. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was, till there was no remedy. Those things that are sometimes hard to hear, you notice in verse 15, it's God expressing His compassion and His love to us. And they mocked it. They didn't want to hear it. In Hosea 4 and verse 6, the, the Scripture tells us, as the Lord speaks, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But I want us to notice why they had a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. When we have a distaste for truth, we'll be destroyed. In Romans 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul explains such came upon the Gentiles because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They, don't, they, they hear the truth, they receive the truth, and they don't like the truth, so they suffocate it. They suppress it. They hold it down. And for this reason, verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. In other words, they went from having the Word of God to a famine of God's Word because they didn't want to hear God's Word anymore. This is the reason why Jesus spoke in parables. He explained that it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Forever has to him more will be given and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. So this is expressing the very principle. You may have a little bit of God's Word, but if you don't like it, then even that's going to be taken away from you. And he explains, he speaks in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he quotes Isaiah as they fulfilled it. Hearing you will hear and you shall not understand. Seeing you will see and shall not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts in turn that I should heal them. You know, there's plenty of churches out there that read some scriptures when they assemble. And perhaps even have a sermon that is started with some scripture. And even though that to some regularity, they're hearing some of the Word of God in those assemblies. They're subject to a spiritual famine of the Word of God because they're hearing but not hearing. And they're seeing but they're not seeing. 
because they don't like what God's Word says. We've got to make sure we don't walk in the steps of the children of Israel. They were subjected to a horrible thing in their captivity, but one of the worst things that came along with it was never being able to hear God's Word. They wanted it. After it was taken away, it says that they thirsted for it. And even the young virgins and the fair men, those who were strong and youthful, they fainted. That's how bad it was. We've been blessed with the complete revelation of God. And Jude verse 3 tells us this. But if we're not careful, there could still be a spiritual famine. if We follow after these things. If you're this evening and have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, we want to give you an opportunity to do so this evening. The gospel tells us that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. If you haven't done that yet, we want you to do that this evening, and we urge you to do that so you can be a child of God with the hope of an eternal inheritance. There may be some other thing, though, of a spiritual nature that we can assist you with, and if that is something that you need, if you're subject to the invitation call, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.